When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. This is Megan Gibson, and you're listening to the Family Brain. Today, I'm going to be finishing up our series on technology and families, and I'm going to be talking with Justine Finn. Justine founded Relationship at the Harvard Innovation Lab in order to end sexual violence, promote healthier relationships, and create safer schools. Justine has a ton of information about how we can kind of change the way men and women, boys and girls, are talking about relationships and how they are treating one another. I think the news has a lot of topics related to this right now. And I've had a number of listeners reach out and ask that we cover something related to this topic, just because it is something that people want to do better with their kids and want to provide their kids with healthy role models and information. I wonder if we could just start, if you could talk a little bit about your own background and just how you came to do this work around gender-related issues, if that's even how you call your work. I, that would be another question. What, it, what do you call the work that you do? <laughs> that's also a, a great question because it's just depending on who I'm speaking to. So a little bit of the background and then I can help describe how I define it. So I grew up in northern Minnesota. And from a young age, I was really passionate about issues related to justice and inequality. I grew up in a Baha'i community, and there's a lot of focus on um, unity and, and working towards social justice. Went to school in Chicago, and I worked for an organization called the Tahari Justice Center a couple years out of college. And Tahari works with immigrant women and girls fleeing horrific forms of gender-based violence. So they're fleeing forced marriage, human trafficking, sexual assaults, etc., and while I was there, I learned that there are so many people experiencing these problems at all levels of society, and there's often not enough resources to even support those who've decided to turn their back on these problems or issues, whether here in the United States or abroad. And I became really interested about how we learn to treat other humans. And if these women and girls were with people who had learned that being in a relationship meant you know, dominating someone else or physically 
you know, um, beating control or assaulting someone else. You know, so we learned violence. I became really curious about how can we learn respect? How can we learn nonviolence? How can we learn equality? And while there, I worked with a number of other organizations around education. Well, worked with Futures Without Violence and did a couple other programs. And I also worked in China and taught at a women's college. And while I was in China, I became aware of how Western media is a real socializer around issues related to gender, issues related to dating, around what it means to be important or beautiful. So I became very interested in the socialization process and how it affects us as humans. And then it affects us in our intimate, in our personal, and our social relationships. And then along the way, I realized that K through 12 is a great space because it's the ultimate socializer. Everyone has to go to school in this country. It's one of the shared things we have amongst, you know, experiencing taxation and death. Mm -hmm. So, and um, I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and studied these issues and realized there was a real lack of conversations and a real lack of support for students and for schools and communities around one, preventing a relationship in sexual violence and also two, helping people develop the healthy capacities, attitudes, uh, features that would let them be in, in great relationships that are meaningful long-term. So I started on an organization relationship at the Harvard Innovation Lab, more because there wasn't really anyone in the space working side-by-side -side with schools than because I wanted to be an innovator or an entrepreneur. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so that is how I came to this path. I never expected to be here doing this work quite, quite this way. And then two, you asked about how I define it. So it's, it's gender work, gender equality work, and then it's also kind of um, school and uh, family, uh, I would say, capacity building work as well. I love that. I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about relationship and just sort of what your goals and mission are through that organization? Absolutely. So relationship you know, the, ultimately the goals are to help those in the K through 12 space, whether it's parents or coaches or school administrators, to get to get the confidence, the skills, the knowledge to address the problems that are existing. So the unfortunate thing is that one out of three teenage girls in a relationship experiences sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And that 40% of people who experience sexual assault experience it before the age of 18. So when we talk about, either, you know, the Me Too movement or sexual violence or harassment, we often think of it happening to young adults or college students. And we often don't think of it happening in the K through 12 space. Mm. And, that's, and it's, it's really tough to talk about, especially yes. when you have kids and imagining it happening to your children or your children's friends is, is really painful. So my hope is that we can kind of, you know, bring the conversation down to the middle high school years, even the elementary and the pre-K years, to address the behaviors as they're forming that both contribute to the good stuff, right? These wonderful, healthy relationships that give us all meaning and that address the negative stuff. So if we think of the school experience as kind of the ultimate socializer, I mean, Megan, like if you go back to like when you were eight, you probably thought your teacher in school was kind of like the man or the symbol of like what the world was like. Yes. And at my school, they separated the boys and the girls at recess and the boys got the field and the girls got a little piece of blacktop. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm serious. I'm serious. Yep. Catholic so what did school. That tell you? What did that 
tell you about, you know, like girls don't need more space to run. Girls don't need exercise to, to, I mean, it's just, it's still even not funny because it's sad, but, um, just that we didn't, well, I felt like we didn't deserve as much, you know, that, that, that we like, we would be fine with whatever little morsel we were given, but the boys need what they need and we need to make sure they get it. And I think their mission was to separate boys and girls because boys and girls aren't safe together somehow. Um, What's that? What do you think the boys learned too? (sighs) What did the boys learn? That they deserve more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did any of them say like, it's it's not fair that the girls are sequestered on this little... Well, frankly, I didn't really talk to them because we were separated. So I don't really know. (laughs) Wow. That's wild. Yeah. So... Anyway, so, sorry. Yeah, so, <laughs> Sidebar. Well, that's great. That's like the perfect example because in our schools, a lot of students experience sexual harassment. Um, over half report experiencing sexual harassment the previous year. It affects academic outcomes. It affects social outcomes. It affects health outcomes. So it's a really common thing that exists in the schools. And, you know, there's a few things that are learned, just like you showed us. Um, victims, well, the issue is most educators, administrators, principals are not prepared to deal with these issues. Even high school counselors across the country, 80% of high school counselors, when asked, um, were reporting not being comfortable dealing with sexual assault or sexual harassment. And these are the people in the building that you would point to as being those that a student should go to if they experience a problem. So most folks in the K-12 space have not received any training or any support about the problem or how to address it. So it's happening in our schools. Young people are experimenting and trying on different roles, and the adults in the building don't know how to handle it, and therefore they kind of look the other way. Yeah. So the and the message that our young people are taking away, if you're a victim, you learn that no one's going to help you. You know, if, if someone throws a chair at you, there is a process in place for that situation. But if someone does something where they talk about your body or someone sends a nude photo without your consent to the whole school, oftentimes educators don't know how to respond. So nothing happens. So the victim learns the kind of harm you experience doesn't matter as much. The perpetrator learns you'll get away with it. And then the rest of the classroom or whoever is observing it, the bystanders learn it's not that big of a deal. Just let it go. Right. Because that authority, that teacher, that um, adult doesn't recognize it or address it. So my goal with relationship is to – do the opposite and really help establish expectations and responses um, for these situations so that everyone takes away the message that, yeah, this kind of harm is harm and we can engage in much more healthy and happy ways. Yeah. And just to be on the same page, I would guess, like, is, is that, have you been met with resistance from communities? No, no. certainly not. Wow. Which has been great. I mean, yes. there are individuals, you know, I always have an individual um, who seems to be really uncomfortable with the conversation and kind of wants to show evidence that this really isn't that big of a deal. Mm. Um, I've had, when I've been speaking, I've had like a man in the audience shaking his head and muttering under his breath the whole time. I've had um, threats over Facebook. Wow. If I keep talking about rape, I'm more likely to be raped. So it's interesting that there is some backlash on the individual level, but never by a community. Wow. Well, and I guess it's probably a selected audience too, because you've been invited to be there. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's great. I mean, what a special, that mission is just amazing. And I think 
you're right. We don't have enough resources for our teachers and our counselors. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about this podcast is maybe there's a counselor out there listening to this that might not have you invited to her community or his community, but will get access to some of this information by listening to this podcast. And, and, and that's the thing. A lot of times it's just, we don't have access to the resources. So how are people to learn about this if it's not provided and it's not something they grew up with? Absolutely. And it's not been modeled to most of us. Most of us haven't had, you know, great models of how to either address unhealthy behavior related to gender or um, intimacy or relationships or how to model healthy behaviors um, and expectations. So that's such a good point. So what are some of the things when you get to a school and you want to make sure that so if there's a teacher or a counselor listening to this or a school administrator what are the things that you suggest starting with? If you if you know your your community needs help, which it sounds like most do, um, what are what are some first steps or things to assess to see where the starting point would be for you? Well, great question. And you know, anyone who is listening out there, the biggest thing is just encouragement to do something and to not have to be perfect or to be the expert. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to have to study this. You don't have to feel confident when you address a student or a family. You just have to try mm-hmm. and um, have some standards for how we treat each other. Yeah. And if you can start there, you will develop the capacity. And once you find one resource, they often can lead you to a whole um, ocean of other resources out there. So I want to encourage anybody uh, along this process. I'm still figuring this out <laughs> as right. I go. So, you know, ideally getting the temperature of the student body, there's often a big gap, and you know this as a parent, as an educator, between what the adults think is happening, especially around behaviors related to dating or friendship or um, hooking up, um, or even like what's what's considered acceptable. There's often a gap between what adults think and what the students are actually experiencing. Um, and, and that's because young people feel a little bit of, of shame around these issues, and they often are afraid of um, burdening the adults in their lives, especially their parents, or they don't want to get in trouble. So if you can get the temperature, and you know, ideally, if you can do an anonymous school survey, you know, how often do unhealthy behaviors occur, um, how commonplace is misconduct, and even looking at attitudes, you know, what do you expect to happen between a boy and girl? Or do you have someone in the building you could go to? Or do you know the policy around misconduct? So if you can do a survey, great. If you can't do that, even a focus group with five students um, in, in, for an hour, finding out their experiences with these issues, asking them if they know what the policies are, what they would do if something happens. So really understanding the the strengths of the school community and culture, as well as some of the challenges starting there. That's great. In talking to the parents as well. Okay. And are there any resources you could point to that could help someone create something like that? Oh, there's there's a ton of great resources. One organization um, is called Making Caring Common. That is, uh, it was founded at Harvard. It's a great national organization. They have a wonderful survey set that a school can participate in to address a whole range of um, uh, identifiers in the school, ranging from how much empathy and consideration students have to issues related to gender and harassment. Um, Of course, I can help any school with building a survey or collecting that data as well. And there's a lot of other organizations. You can even create something on SurveyMonkey 
for a Google oh, yeah. form with 10 questions for free, you know, a 10 question survey, uh, you can set it up, you know, connect it to your school email and collect that data anonymously. And that, that is something that could be a great first start. I love that. I love that. And I love what you said about it not be needing to be perfect. Before we recorded, we were sort of talking about me and this podcast and just how I was nervous to make it perfect. And then once I realized it didn't have to be, you're like, okay, let's do this thing. And I think that's a stumbling block for a lot of people, well, not feeling confident in a certain space and, and, keeping that as the reason for not acting, you know, and even in topics that I think I know so much about, I start talking to somebody and it makes me realize, wow, I still have so much to learn, but that's okay. As long as you sort of approach it as a humble learner, like I'm going to do what I do know now, and I'm going to continue to learn about it to do better each time. Absolutely. And I think with issues around harassment or bullying, or even, you know, kids are sharing photos amongst themselves in the back of, the back of class and you have a sense it's, it's like an inappropriate photo or maybe it's even um, something that's absolutely forbidden. Teachers are really afraid, I think of, or educators, all of us adults, <laughs> we're afraid of making a mistake, especially around the awkward topics, especially where we don't have 100% confidence that we know the dynamics at play. Yes. Because a lot of this, it's like, well, um, maybe she likes that attention from that boy Maybe it's a consensual situation. I don't want to, you know, call something out and be the teacher who's awkwardly bringing this up. But whether it's at a party, whether it's um, in our family, most of us actually have a pretty good gut reading on when something is happening that isn't okay. So a lot of people don't act. People often are bystanders instead of upstanders when it comes to relationship violence or sexual violence or sexual harassment, whether it's between an authority figure like someone, an educator or a counselor and a student, or it's people in our daily lives or someone on the train. So, you know, we're asking educators um, to do a lot, but the difference between being at a party and seeing somebody being kind of treated poorly um, and, and not responding and being an educator in a classroom or a coach with your team is that you have a legal responsibility in most cases to intervene and you also are such a strong presence you're such a strong role model and you can really make a lasting impression that might change many of the lives in the room um, so it is tough but the thing is is I think we don't have to have the perfect language we don't have to know everything that's going on, but we do know we do need to stand up for everyone being treated with respect and dignity. So I think if that's your baseline, if you're like, okay, I don't have to know all the details, I don't have to know, you know, how long they dated and who broke up with whom, I can sense there's something going on here. You can always say, you know, are we treating each other with respect? You can always check in and make sure that people feel a sense of um, authority and agency in the situation. You don't have to be the expert on gender or, or the expert on any of this. Right. If your goal is to demand and expect respect from your students towards each other, no matter what. Yes. And I think I'm just picturing it's almost better that you're a piece of their community. You're not some expert on gender, gender from Harvard showing up and you know what I mean? I'm not nothing yes. against any of that. Cause I love that, but you know, you're an insider. And so you might, because of your, your background and how you fit in the community be an even better person to speak up than someone who is the quote unquote expert, you know, um, not, not, I'm not putting, I'm not putting you in quotes. I'm just saying a expert in general, <laughs> you are the expert. You can put me in quotes. No. I 100% agree. Yes. And my goal, Megan, is to like 
get me out of the community and school as quickly as possible. So how to equip the adults in the building and the parents in the community with the confidence, the skills, the capacity where they can directly identify the problems and solve them. Yes. And I think they already can. They already can. They just need a little extra um, encouragement and support. I love that. That's great. So what are some of the biggest things? And I'm, I'm guessing this can range community to community, but what are some of the biggest things you're hearing from kids and adults about some of the issues going on in their buildings? Sure. You know, one thing I'll say, Megan, is it's insane how um, every school is its own environment. There are different policies. There are different um, roles for addressing different issues. So every school is its kind of own universe. So it needs a little bit of a custom approach. At the same time, the issues show up again and again and again. Uh, Every single school and community I work with. So you might have a community that looks really different than another community. They're still going to have these problems. Right. Once you sort of peel back the layers of how people are dressed and how people talk and, you know, what sports people play, there's sort of a core that's similar. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, what? I'll start with technology. So there's a lot of issues coming up with how we are spending time treating each other, talking about each other. Uh, over your smartphones, through our devices. There's also the issue of how we are presenting ourselves to the world through our devices. So, you know, if you look at different populations, it'll come up differently. But um, in, in middle school, in, when people are starting to get social media platforms, there's this issue kind of of self-objectification. So we see a lot of girls who are saying, like, it's empowering if I post this very sexy photo of myself because I'm choosing to share it with the world. And then, you know, I'll get feedback on it, et cetera. So that's an issue that kind of comes up in middle school and um, is often quite gendered where the girls are participating differently than the boys. And the boys might be, you know, commenting or sharing. And then there's often a lot of pressure also for pics. And you probably know what I mean when I say pics, right? I think I just learned about it. So <laughs> are you? I, I, why don't you tell me, and then I'll see if I know. Probably I don't I know. To put you the spot. Yeah, no, I think probably I don't know. I just learned about this whole Snapchat thing about like keeping a streak going. So I'm a little behind yes. on all of the things. That was news that's to me. Okay. Yeah, that was I news to me. We all are. You know, for over the age of eighteen, we're behind. Yeah, and that doesn't mean we don't <laughs> have the capacity to to jump in. Right. So you know, seventh to about tenth grade, there's um. I'll, I'll share a story that'll help kind of uh, characterize it. But there's um, kind of a, a social currency, a social hierarchy in some communities based on how many picks a guy can get. And so I'll, there's a school I spoke to. They were very progressive. They had a ton of great resources. And I did a presentation with the young people on gender and gender equality. And they were fantastic. They also were experts. I mean, they had already spoken about all these issues starting in kindergarten because they're a very progressive school. So you wouldn't expect this to happen in this setting. They came up to me afterwards and they said, Ms. Finn, we loved your presentation. Thank you, but we're in a really difficult situation. So I had my ears perked up. And they said, the issue is we are all super confident. Like one of them was captain of the lacrosse team. The other one, I think, was, you know, had a student council. They were straight A students. They said the issue is that the boys in our grade, their popularity each day and each week depends on how many picks they can get from the girls. Our popularity depends on the boys liking us. So there's kind of like core group of eighth grade boys who are really popular and they are kind of all trying to show each other how, you know, 
how much power and persuasion they have to get nude photos or sexy photos from the girls. So they care about what each other thinks. And the social currency is the girls' photos. The girls, in order to be considered popular or likable, they need to send those photos. And so they don't want to send the photos. And some of the boys probably don't even want to ask for the photos. But you have these girls who are otherwise extremely empowered, who you think would be like the most confident, but the most likely to, you know, run for president, etc. Not feeling like they have control over whether they have to send a photo of themselves to the boys in their grade, or not feeling empowered enough to, to resist that temptation, that, that pressure. So, you know, it's interesting how we have often empowered our young people to be really confident in every other area of life, except for when it comes to their relationships, their gender, their, their sexuality. So in this eighth grade situation, you have an issue of people sending nude photos, and um, most of the girls not feeling comfortable not sending the nude photos. And I see that in a lot of communities I, I get to work with. And it might look different for the 10th graders than it does for 8th graders, but when I bring this situation up in my work with the young people in the building, they all nod their heads. Like, it's, it's, it's rapid. Okay. Um, for the record, I had no clue what you were talking about. I mean, I, I thought you just meant pictures, like, oh, we send pictures. I had no idea about this at all. So if that is encouraging to anyone, maybe it's discouraging, but hopefully it's encouraging. Like, I think I kind of, I've been talking to a lot of people about these things and I didn't know. I mean, I know that people send inappropriate pictures, but I didn't know there was like a count going. I mean, you know, it might, it, I think that's especially common with 7th and 8th and ninth grade. I think oh. when you get up to 10th, 11th and 12th grade, there's a lot more independence. Um, it's, it's not such a, you know, like, you think about junior high culture, and the it's a really thick culture with pretty strong and rigid rules around who is in the social hierarchy, right? And so that's when the pressure is especially high to conform and to either send the photos or to request the photos. And it's also when you are just discovering your own kind of sexuality and identity and deciding what you like and who you like and whether, you know, you will participate. So it's a really tough year um, and tough time. Yeah. And I think when kids get a little older, they are a little more resilient. They've experienced people asking for things and they get better at saying no. Yes. But that is one of the big issues I see. And again, it's pretty, it's pretty ubiquitous, unfortunately. Um, and the young people, you know, you know, if your eighth grader came to you, it'd be really tough for them to come to you. Right? Yes. Um, because if you could see my face right now, yes. I'm like, oh. Traumatized. Yes. Traumatized. Yes. I know. Um, so that's a big issue. And then, you know, if, if people in 10th, 11th, 12th grade form relationships, a lot of the relationship happens over the device. It's texting. It's checking in. It's, um, you know, doing video calls. And so sometimes some of the issues I see are some of the unfortunate parts of the relationship, whether it's control, whether it's pressure, whether it's some type of abuse or being put down happens to the device as well, where somebody might require someone else to share their passwords. Like, I need your Snapchat password. Or if you really love me, you let me have your email because I just want to make sure that, you know, you're being loyal. So that can sneak through and happen over devices, and it's harder for parents to see any of that because it's not happening in, in real life. Um, but one thing I will say, Megan, is most of the time, young people want to spend time together face-to-face. So a, a lot of the behavior, both positive and some of it unhealthy, is happening face-to-face, just like it did for us when we were in school as well. Right. I mean, I'm just thinking, and this is why I think this is so critical for parents and adults to get all of this information, because it's just such a different landscape. I mean, I think about, like, 
the communal one phone line I had and oh, yeah. everybody's watching you as you have this conversation. And so you keep it quick and it's just such a different environment and um, it's tough. I mean, it gives me such, it, it makes me almost sad for the kids. It's such a hard situation to be learning all of these things in such a public, you know, unerasable yes. way. It's yes, really, like really we, hard. We we make tons of risks. If you look back at the photos um, from my high school years, it's like, oh my goodness. Like I was just trying things on and experiencing and experimenting. And I'm so glad it, it doesn't have a digital footprint. Yes. <laughs> right. right. Um, so yeah, you're, you're so right. There's just, they have a bigger audience that they are growing and um, developing their identities in front of. And as you said, it's a more permanent audience as well. It's, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. And then as adults, we're really here to mentor them through that process. And um, it's a lot of responsibility on us as well. Yes. In that process. So what do you recommend? Yes, right. What what do you recommend to the adults when they're hearing these kinds of things or in that conversation with the girls when you were talking to them about this currency that was at play? What do you what did you suggest to them? Well, I asked them first, you know, well, what do you think? What do you think can happen? Like, what, what, like, what are the problems in this situation? What are the challenges? So, I, you know, first, always starting with questions and really getting more information from them and finding out how they feel about it. How do you really feel? Do you want to stop sending the photos? Um, do you feel pressured? Do you have fear? And then also establishing, like, what the bottom line is. What What are the expectations we have for how we treat each other? What um, do you need at the very bare minimum to happen? And I always say, like, you know, most young people don't know that in many states, possession of or distribution of, you know, new photos of minors is a misdemeanor or a felony. So, you know, I always am not okay with young people sending inappropriate or sexual photos of each other or of others. But first starting out with the question, so not starting out with the hard line first, you know, uh, why do you think this is happening? What can you do? And, and trying to work with them to identify a strategy that will work for their everyday real life social consequences. And a lot of times it's hard for us as adults to remember how exquisitely, um, how exquisitely painful it can be for them to step away from what everyone else is doing. So really working with that. So they came up with the idea, well, what if we all kind of stopped what if we kind of decided as a community of, of girls that we're not going to send these photos anymore? So kind of banding together. That way, the two of us who stop are the prudes who get rejected and don't get invited to the social parties or, you know, get the boys' attention. So that was what they came up with. Right. Um, I think for every school and every system, whether it's an organization that serves youth or a school environment, or even a family, having established policies and expectations around how you treat each other whether it's face-to-face or online, is really important. So if you have, you know, a tech policy or media policy at home, and I know that you're going to get into this with some of your other interviewers. I don't want to, you know, spend too much time here. But having policies for how we use our phone and how we treat each other. Um, if an issue comes up and kids are getting a little older, you can have, you know, no possession of um, nude or sexual photos on the phone, no sharing nude or sexual photos with your phone. As a school, you should have a policy in place that you share every year with your young people. You can ask your students to sign those policies. That also helps protect the school environment. Doing follow-up conversations by um, having conversations with the health classes or having conversations 
um, in smaller groups, for, for example, with the sports teams or um, with just the freshmen is a really great way to set expectations okay. because most schools aren't even talking about it. That's what I'll tell you. Most schools, most families are just kind of like, we're also freaked out. It, um, we don't know what to do. We're afraid to say you're doing the wrong thing that we don't act. But at the bare minimum, establishing expectations with the consequences goes a very long way. Yes. And I don't know if it's just me and the people I'm talking with, but it seems like that trend is starting to change that people are realizing like we've got a problem here. We need to make sure we have rules and not just for the kids, for the adults as well. I mean, not rules for the adults, but just an awareness of how we're using our phones and the quick access we have now to everything. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it seems like it's shifting, I hope. Yes. And, and I'll tell you one other reason it's really great to have a policy in place with a consequence is it gives that person who doesn't want to participate in the behavior, whether it's, you know, looking at, um, inappropriate content on your phone or whether it's, um, you know, having to send someone a picture, et cetera, et cetera, that student who doesn't want to participate has the out of saying like, well, I don't want to get in trouble right. or, um, my mom looks at my phone. I can't send you the photos or, you know, my dad manages our, our contract, et cetera. He will know, you know, so giving them that out that, you know, your family or your community, your school has established a policy with consequences makes it a lot easier for them to not participate because then it's not on them to say, well, I don't want to send this photo. I don't want to, you know, X, Y, Z. Right. I love that. What, and it's, it's good. I'm going to have to explain it. And I, I would suggest that the kids might not appreciate that at the moment. You know, we, I'm no. already with my son <laughs> is only 10 and he's just thinks I'm an ogre, you know, but, uh-huh. and that's uh-huh. okay. That's okay. He doesn't need to yeah. be like, wow, mom, thanks for loving me that much. You know, that's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Exactly. One so, um, of the things I'm curious about, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about is just, I feel like, you know, in this example, we're talking about girls sending pictures and the boys are the receivers of these pictures. What role are you seeing boy and boy culture and maybe sort of like this toxic masculinity playing in some of the things that are going on and not to point the finger at, you know, boys, you're doing it wrong, but just, can you talk a little bit about how, how boys are getting in this position where that's sort of what they're expecting from other people? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought the the conversation up of masculinity and um, boy and male culture. And as you said, with conversations around media and how we are all as adults, as young people spending more time on our screens, how it's affecting us. We also are having conversations on what it means to be a boy and a man. Um, perhaps for the first time is like a wider mainstream culture. And I think it's a, it's a really positive move. So one plug I'm going to put out there is for the mask you live in documentary. Megan, have you seen this um, documentary? It's on Netflix. No. It's amazing. It's a okay. representation project, amazing organization. I often will bring in clips of this video to my young people and to the adults I work with. Even the trailer on YouTube, if you watch it, it's two and a half minutes, kind of will help sum up what toxic masculinity is and how our young people are um, getting really strong doses of this from a young age. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's essentially the socialization of our men and boys. And I think for a number of years, many of us have talked about our girls and what's happening to women and the pressures we experience without looking at men and boys yes and I remember what's the movie there's a movie that was made a long time ago about women and I know I saw that do you know what I'm talking about misrepresentation maybe it was it was basically a bunch of clips from advertising and sort of 
helped you understand why the the socialization we're getting from advertising. I think maybe it was misrepresentation. I'll have to look it up. I'll I'll put a link to the movie I'm talking about. But I remember watching that movie and being like, that's what I'm I mean, it's it put so many pieces together that you kind of are aware of that are out there in the world, but it makes so much more sense when it's presented to you as, you know, this is why your brain is thinking this way. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not just we're naturally this way as men and women or just as humans, we tend to do this. It's like, oh, we have been socialized over the years through advertising or movies or elements of our culture. It may have been the Gene Kilborn. Yes, that's um, who it was. I don't series, know what it was right? called. Mm-hmm. Killing a soft yes. and You can go on YouTube and you're listening and um, the images might be from like the 2000s, but it's pretty similar today. Yes. So the, the representation project, uh, if you go to their website, you can find wonderful tools to use in the classroom or conversation starters, and then if you go on YouTube, you can see the clips for their two short films, and if you go on Netflix, you can have a whole hour and a half, and these would be wonderful activities to bring to a high school, or even a middle school, and have you know, a parent night around, um, and something I often will encourage or do as well. So the, the socialization of boys, I mean, why are these eighth grade boys doing this, right? Um, or, you know, why are sixth grade boys using homophobic slurs against each other? Or why do we have some of our senior boys who, when they're in a loving relationship, maybe for the first time with a girl or with a boy, usually with a girl, and they're opening up their hearts and they're being vulnerable, and then they start to use, you know, control mechanisms because they're so afraid of her leaving them that they're, you know, texting her hundred times a day or needing to know where she is at all times or needing her pastor. Why is this happening? not natural so you know i think and there's also there's some great ted talks i'd love to share this but tony porter and jackson Katz are great folks to look at as well around this masculinity but um tony porter does conversations with men and boys around the country and says he can ask any any group when they first heard the words uh be a man and when they learn to cut off their neck from the rest of their body by that he means he asked men and boys when did you first realize that you could only operate from the head up and you couldn't operate using your heart or your gut or your soul. And most men, if you ask them, they, they remember an age when they realized that in order to be considered a real man, to be considered a guy's guy, get the popularity and affection of the older guys in the playground or even your dad or your brothers, they had to stop being feminine. They had to shut down everything that was associated with being girly because that was lower or less than. And so you know, a lot of kids that I talk to, I have these conversations and they say four or five or six or seven. And, um, they realize that to be anything feminine is to be less than. And so that starts real young. And as they get older, they realize to have some kind of sexual power over women and girls or have power over women and girls at all is another way they can kind of beef up their manliness, beef up their, you know, heterosexual masculinity and impress the men and boys around them and gain some kind of power. And so I think for these eighth grade boys, being able to show off to their other guy friends that they can get so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so's pictures is a way that they together can kind of bond as, as guys, as dudes. And they've learned that from all the movies they've seen, all the TV shows, um, all the advertisements that show men who can get women um, in bed with them easily, that men who can kind of bond over objectifying other women, checking her out, dang, she's hot, et cetera, that it, they've learned that that's one a way men can bond together is by talking about women, objectifying women too. And then that that shows that they have the qualities that make them a real man, that they can attract women and even, um, you know, kind of use them and let them go 
and not showing any vulnerability or sympathy or openness because that is often seen as a weakness. So yeah. I'm not saying that this is how all boys are and men no. are at all. This is not how they are, but this is often kind of the recipe for male, super hyper male success that they've been given. Um, and they're trying to follow this playbook, this script for how to be successful. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm going to tell you, Megan, like for some boys and men, this is how they do become socially successful. And, uh, Many men and boys can also, in high school and junior high, be emotional and, and sensitive and fully human um, and masculine and be socially successful. But for some of them, they need to shut down that emotional side before they gain that status. No, that I don't is... know if that helps answer the question or was too much. But... No, it, it totally answers the question. And now I'm just uh, thinking about what it would be like to be a boy who is struggling with your sexuality at that time. I mean, it sounds like it would be a challenge to be interested in girls and have all of these things going on but what if that you're not even interested in girls and what kind of messages you're getting about how wrong that is I mean what a what a lonely place to be I guess such a lonely place to be exactly as you say or or, you know and I would even say for um like anybody who doesn't fit that box kind of that binary of like you know really you know man's man guy's guy who likes girls but you might have a guy who's more sensitive, mm-hmm. who tends to gravitate towards more feminine things, who loves to express himself through dance or paint, but also is um, heterosexual, is straight. That's a really tough place to be because maybe if he went into another box sexually, he could still fit a box. Right. right? So- and we could explain his femininity by his sexuality. Like, oh, he likes girls' things because he likes boys. Um when in fact we know he just might like things because uh, that's part of his nature. Right, right. What so if you were going to tell the girls that you know in that instance they can band together, what what do you think you would want to say to the boys? I mean, these are hard questions, so I don't expect to necessarily an answer. But what do you <laughs> <laughs> fix this, Justine? Um, <laughs> what what would you say to the boys? You know, if they're struggling, that this is what is expected of them. How how do you safely navigate that? Such a great question. So, I mean, there's like the five minute conversation with the boys, you know, it depends how much time I have with the boys. And with if I just have the access to the boys or do I have access to, you know, their school community and their other influencers, whether it be their parents or uh, their coaches or their, their educators, um, if I just have a conversation with the boys, and it, I might do really, I mean, I'll, I'll try to assess from them, like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? How does it make you feel? What happens if you don't get enough photos? What happens if you all stopped asking? Do you feel pressure? What happens if your teacher finds out? How do you think your parents will feel? So kind of getting a sense from them what their understanding is of the situation, both their motivations and um, their fears around it, as well as understanding the consequences. So I, I would try 10 minutes to try to get them to speak to each other about that. And then try to establish, hey, are you, you know, there's the consequences. Again, we know that's not the best way to motivate or um, – uh, try to get them to stop certain behaviors is by saying, okay, do you know that you might have a misdemeanor or felony for possession of you know, inappropriate or new photos? But I would for sure let them know that that might be the case, letting right. them know what the policies are and doing a little bit of the reality check with them, what could happen if they keep sharing these photos or asking for these photos. But then I would get to, if I could, um, a sense of, well, what are you really asking for when you're asking for a photo and um, what are you communicating to yourself and to your friends and to the girl about what's important about her when you ask for her nude photo Um, and getting to a sense of uh, 
understanding, um, kind, kind of like, again, like that socialization, what is motivating you, um, why you need to share this with your guy friends. Um, and it, it's a little bit, I, I will say you can get junior high kids to have empathy for the opposite gender. That isn't always the best way to motivate them. So getting them to think, okay, all these girls are being objectified or telling them that only their beauty or sexuality matters. Isn't that unfair? You can do that, but that won't, I think, be as effective as getting to a sense of um, why do you even need the approval from each other through how many photos you have, um, understanding the consequences, the policies in place. And if I had more time having conversations with them around their social culture, around um, how open they feel with each other, around why they kind of need to posture and peacock, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their sexuality and prowess with each other. I would have those longer conversations. Do you find that there's yeah. often, oh, it sounds <laughs> very challenging. Um, I, I'm thinking of having that conversation just with one child, nevertheless, a huge group of children that, you know, it's it's sort of daunting. Do you often find that within either the boy group or the girls group that there's often a ringleader for this kind of thing or is it just something that over time has just built oh that's a great question and it'll be to be honest I don't know if I have enough data to answer that for um for how it like slowly forms through each social community amongst the students right um but I will say when it comes to young people being exposed to whether it's pornography or inappropriate conduct or really violent material most parents don't realize how early their children are being exposed. So, Megan, I don't know if I shared this with you, and whenever I share it, I always feel so apologetic because it's such a burden for any adult who cares about young people to hear this. But the average age that young people are being exposed to pornography in this country is age eight, mm-hmm. which is really early. And yeah. that isn't often on purpose. It's often accidentally, you know, clicking on something when you're looking at cat videos, for yes. example. Yes, Um we but had that happen also, in our home, like just looking up something about an animal and it, it's just, I mean, it's pervasive and I, it is, it is, it, I'm almost glad that happened though, because it was such a wake up call for me. Cause I was sitting right there and I, I think I was the one who put in the search words, you know, and, um, it's just a wake up call that it's just, it's too easy. It's so easy. Yeah. So easy. And so some of it is accidentally stumbling on it. Some of it is also um, students who, or, or friends, you know, whether it's like, you know, two eight-year-olds playing together, one who maybe has older siblings or, um, you know, has just been exposed to more adult or inappropriate stuff, sharing it and exposing it with another young person. So, yeah, there often is the case of one person who um, might have this proclivity or they want to prove themselves or they have an older brother or whatever uh, is kind of bringing this behavior to the rest of the kids in the, in the group. So with the eighth graders, you may have somebody who um, is kind of this, has the most social capital in the group, and he is kind of setting the tone for the rest of the students on what is cool, what is not cool. And so what's tough is you might have other kids who are like in that group of, like, say, eight to ten cool kids, cool boys. You might have two or three who aren't okay with this, who do think this is harassment, who don't even want to be asking this, but they know they have to participate in order to maintain their group status. Right. And I keep wanting to put my little air quotes around cool because I think yeah. that's a point of investigation, right? What, what is it cool to just follow what else somebody else wants you to do or, you know, sort of changing the terms, you know, or is it cool to stand up for what you really believe? And that's something you're going to have to 
think about, you know? I mean, because if you tell them, hey, that's not cool, no one's going to listen, but. (laughs) And it might be different, you know, in some schools, there might be a much more alternative group Mm -hmm. where, you know, actually being like somebody who stands up for social justice is what makes you more cool. And um, these issues might show up in other ways. It might be the girls who are kind of, as I said, like, self-objectifying where they're sending lots of kind of sexy photos or maybe to upperclassmen or, you know, posting on Instagram because they want, you know, to show how confident they are in their bodies. So the conversation might look a little different for different communities. But I think, you know, if you, if you encourage and expect respectful behavior, if you set clear definitions for what is harassment and what is kind of consensual behavior, if you have these conversations early on, whether it's um, occurring online or in person, if you start talking even to your preschoolers about, respectful, consensual behavior, it's a lot easier to do when it comes up in junior high or in high school. Yes. But it's never too late. I want to be clear. It's never too late to have these conversations um, with the young people in your life. I love that. So what, how would you encourage as adults, you know, within, I'm thinking of me and my friends and then me with, you know, school communities, how, how do you encourage people to sort of open these conversations within themselves and sort of support one another? Because it's not easy work. It's not clear cut. How do you get people to, within communities, I guess the adults to support each other as they're sort of figuring out, since there's not just one answer, I guess, so to open communication. Great. And by that, you mean being kind of aware and mindful of how we might have our own biases around gender or around, you know, any other identities. Yes. And disagreement sometimes about that. Yes. Which is tough because we kind of think of ourselves, I don't know, I think many of us at a certain age see ourselves as being immune from social forces or from advertising's impact. Especially as parents, we kind of see ourselves as more static or rigid um, and fixed. So that's a great question because we're, we're not. We are very much um, influenced by each other and society. So I think it's wonderful, as you said, to have these conversations, be aware of how we are influenced, and um, start them with each other. So how do we do that? I think there are so many wonderful opportunities, whether it's in mainstream media, whether it's in um, TV shows or you know all the big comic book superhero movies. There's so many great conversation starters around these issues whether it's looking at the role of the woman um, and girls in the movie or TV show, whether it's looking at a certain theme, whether it's the Me Too movement. I mean, it's you can have a conversation with the, the guy making your coffee at Starbucks about it if you want. It's just so much more commonplace and acceptable to be talking about these issues than it was five years ago. So that's good news. And, um, you know, so bringing it up, I, I think, is really natural and, and perceived much more openly than it was two years ago. But I think it's easier to talk about something outside of us than something within us first. So that's my first piece of advice is if you want to start this conversation, whether it's in your home with your kids or your, your partner or with your coworkers, your friends, talk about something other than your own experiences and how it's affecting you first. So talk about that movie or TV show. Talk about that statistic, you know, one out of three teenage girls experiences sexual, emotional, or physical abuse in a relationship. Oh my gosh, I learned this. Um, and talk about that. Yes. No, it's that often makes a lot safer and we can kind of discuss what's going on out there more easily than we can talk about what's going on in here or in our own lives. Yes. But it often will gravitate or move towards that. No, we were watching Saved by the Bell in the car just for carpool. And Slater, I think I've said this before on a different, is so disrespectful. And, and it's, you know, there's a laugh track behind <laughs> it. But every time I'm pushing pause and be like, 
wow, there's Slater being super disrespectful again. And it was, I mean, at first I was cringing because I'm like, why are we watching this? But it was a good way to talk about, like, you don't talk to people like that, you know? And and nobody actually really likes it. There might be laughter in the background, but look at the people around him. People don't like the way he's talking. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that's, that's my point. aside. That's exactly it. And those opportunities are right. If we wear a critical lens and look for it when we're listening to music with our kids in the car or with our friends, um, we can be like, oh, that song by, like, Robin Thicke, like, Blurred Lines, oh, it always drives me crazy. What do you think? You know, one question is, you know, are we influenced by the media and devices that we are immersed in? That's a great conversation starter. Um, You know, and it's important because when I work with educators, I realize at least 20% are survivors of sexual assaults. Because one out of five college women experiences sexual assault while on campus. So at the bare minimum, when I'm working with educators, most have college degrees, at least 20% of them have Mm -hmm. experienced this statistically probably many more and a good percentage of the men as well some say um you know between one and 33 or one out of 18 and many of them haven't necessarily come to terms with this or healed from it so it can bring up stuff for people yes as you do this work and um that can often be a reason why we turn away from this or don't want to talk about it mm-hmm. or don't want to address it too so it's, it's, i'm so glad you brought that up because you know as adults we still have a lot to learn and we can help each other heal and grow in our communities as well. That's great. No, I love it. And I think it's so easy as educators or as people caring for young people, we make kids the priority as it should be. But we often forget, like you said, that they're adults that have unhealed wounds as well. And to be mindful of that and um, just to, to, to remember that we have work to do as adults too. I, I just think we're often very quick to point the finger at kids. Kids and their yes. phones, kids and their, you know, inappropriate yeah. thoughts. Like, w- they got that from us, <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Especially with our phones. I mean, the average kid I talk to, especially, you know, like five, six, seven-year-olds, their biggest complaints about their parents are mom and dad's on their phone too much. Right. Um, and we're the ones who, who are modeling for them how to behave with these things. Right. And, and one other thing, Megan, I didn't say, and I have to say too, is uh, you know, some of the first work I would do with the community with boys and girls with, you know, single sex, et cetera, is also helping people know what to do if something happens to you. So where to go, let them know um, who to talk to, what will happen if you talk to somebody, whether it's a counselor or administrator or giving them a hotline, letting people know what your resources are. Okay. And just having a very clear plan in the school or whatever system of this is what you do. Exactly. And and you said, you know, how do you initiate this conversation if you're a parent Mm -hmm. or anybody in the community? You can ask your school, hey, what are your policies around sexual misconduct? Mm. What do I do if my kid, what happens if my kid's a perpetrator? You right. know, what, what are the consequences? What happens if they're um, a victim or survivor? Uh, how should they report this? And a lot of schools may not have really robust policies, but it's something they can do pretty quickly, actually. And that can have a really big impact as well, is uh, working on those policies. That's great. Is there anything that I, you were hoping we'd talk about that I haven't asked you about? Well, probably a, a lot of things. We're definitely going to need a, another episode here. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. You know, and I, I just, I'm so glad that you were taking time um, to have these conversations. And I, I again, your, your posture towards this is so encouraging of, you know, we can all do this. We all um, have the ability to, to really have an impact in feeling that confidence and um, encouragement. So the one issue I think is, um, 
just having this as an ongoing conversation with our young people, whether it's as educators, whether it's as counselors, whether it's as parents, and not just seeing this as like a one-time talk where I'm going to have a talk about everything ranging from, you know, sending and receiving inappropriate photos to consent to not getting pregnant to, um, you know, not assaulting or transgressing anyone's boundaries. Like a lot of times parents feel like I'm going to have this one and done talk and have to cover everything and it's going to be horrible. Mm. <laughs> if, if that's what you're going to do versus not do anything, do the talk. Yes, right, right. For you. Yes. If that's all you can Better do, than nothing. Like, yeah. Yes. But if you can have this as an ongoing conversation, as you said, talking about what's going on with Slater in the mm-hmm. TV show, it becomes a lot more natural and a lot more part of that person's um, thinking and their socialization right. and a part of your family culture. Because what happens if you have this as an ongoing conversation, even if it's awkward, even if they're running out of the room saying, Mom, I never want to hear you talk about that again. They know that you are up for it. Yes. If something happens to them or their friends or they have a question or they feel uncomfortable, you have established that you want to talk about it. And whether it is you know healthy relationships, whether it is sex, whether it is love and how to have healthy, loving relationships. Again, this is something Rick Weisbord at Making Care and Common talks about is how to prepare our young people to be in love and have those really wonderful, juicy, meaningful relationships. We don't really do that at all. No. We just mostly do the disaster prevention work. But so my, my big thing is how can we have these conversations in an ongoing, open way throughout the child's life, um, whether it's in school and in the community, and we don't have to just talk about this tricky, sticky um, disaster stuff. We can talk about the many elements of relationships, of gender, of Uh, friendships. Yes. I love that because it's such a pep talk for, you know, when you have those moments where something inappropriate cross, because it's going to happen, right? You're going to have a moment where your kids are seeing something that you wish they didn't see or seeing an advertisement that is not what you would want them to be seeing, but to use it as a conversation starter instead of like, oh, turn the channel. Like, okay, I don't like this and here's why. And kind of to get excited about that opportunity instead of horrified by it. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. You can just it's ask great. questions. You know, at the end of the day, you don't even have to state your stance. Mm. Um, if you're walking past the Victoria's Secret store in the mall and there's an like, exceptionally, you know, problematic image or message, you can just ask questions and right. see what they think. And you don't have to wrap it up with some big lecture. Okay. And I think there's often this pressure. <laughs> I could learn from that. I, I, I'm yeah. a big fan of big lectures. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> but I just know for a lot of our kids, sometimes they turn off. But if you just find out what they think. Mm-hmm. And you, develop their capacity to think critically, even if you don't like what they say, right. get them to think critically on these issues. That is a huge, oh, that's a huge great. win. Okay. And you can do that as a teacher too. You can do that as an uh, art teacher, a science teacher, you know, anyone can do this. I love that. And then wake up their brain instead of being like the Simpsons teacher, like wah, 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 wah. Cause I can <laughs> see my son just starting to glaze over. Like here she goes again, you know? Yeah. Um, I love yeah. that. That's great encouragement. Um, so one of the things I like to ask at the end of the podcast is just to hear, you know, you're doing this sort of emotionally draining work and helping other people stay strong. What do you do for your own self-care to keep yourself strong while you're doing this challenging work? So, you know, some of it is looking at the bright spots. So where is this working? How is this having an impact? And that always comes through. Any work I get to do, I just, I so love it. We'll have people coming up at the end of a presentation or a workshop or a training saying, thank you, I now know how to intervene. Or I had a, you know, a ninth grade boy at a school I spoke to and he was tall, blonde, athletic kid. 
And he waited till all the other people left after the presentation and said, Ms. Finn, I'm so glad you're doing this work because this happened to me. I was assaulted when I was younger. Mm. And no one knows. And no one would think it's going to happen. He was really nervous. He wasn't yeah. looking at the ground. Yes. But it was like, oh, my gosh. Like, yes. So oh. finding the bright spots. And the, you don't always get that, especially as a parent. You don't often get the rewards. You don't see the good you're doing in it. So, so focusing on that versus all the ways that, you know, we aren't being encouraged or the opportunities that don't come or, you know, all the problems. And then I'll tell you truthfully, I don't watch a lot of movies or TV shows that depict the kind of violence and abuse that I'm working to prevent. Right. It's just too triggering. And so, you know, I can't watch Game of Thrones. Me neither. I know. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to. I wanted to be in, but it's, but you just it's too much. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then I, I try to surround myself with as much kind of nurturing uh, and grounding um, reminders that remind me of like the dignity and the nobility in all human beings. So even if someone's a perpetrator or someone, um, you know, is the bad guy in a movie or TV show, like that still is like a beautiful person who deserves respect and just didn't get that training in life. And so for me, that's my faith community. That's meditation. That's listening to good music. Um, so kind of nurturing myself with other, other sources of, uh, uh, reminders of, of our, our shared nobility and dignities of human beings. That's really important. I love that. I love this question because it encourages me too. You know, we talk about all these hard topics and it's, you know, you, you kind of have to ground yourself in something positive to be able to continue the challenging work. Um, yes. So I love, I love all of that. Well, thank you so much. I am so inspired by you and it just gives me such encouragement <clears throat> in talking to my own kids about this. Um, and just reminding me how important it is, even in those moments where you don't want to use things as a teachable moment, you know, yeah. just remember, and not every single moment needs to be teachable. I got it. <laughs> even though sometimes I lean towards that end. It just to encourage me that, you know, that this is important work and that our kids are worth it, you know, to, to make sure that we're taking the time to challenge all that's coming our way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, Megan, for the opportunity and for all these incredible episodes. I've loved listening to them. And, um, and, and kudos to everyone out there working with children and kids or being parents. Like, you are doing such a good job. It is so challenging, demanding, and you're expected to, to be everything um, and solve every social issue through children, right? So yes. There's a, there's a lot on your plate, and it's not easy, but uh, you, can, you can do it from whatever you have, wherever you are. You can make an impact. I've gotten to see it. Thank you for listening to The Family Brain. I want to thank Justine Finn for her work and for her sharing her information. If you'd like to learn more about Relationshift, you can go to their website, relationshiftproject.com to learn more about all the great things they're doing. And I plan to dig in more to this topic. Justine had a number of great resources and I'm going to be reaching out to them to see if we can learn more about this topic. And I want to thank Game Day Media for producing the show. If you'd like to become a part of the Family Brain community, you can add yourself on our Facebook group. And you can also check out our Instagram account, which is Family Brain Podcast, where I add little teasers about upcoming episodes and also will pull out some different quotes from past episodes. So that's a good way to follow what we are up to. So thanks for listening.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.